Hey friends, it's Kevin. Or as you probably call me, your favorite there's no business like host. It's okay, you can admit it. The others aren't here yet. Are you going to the Midwest Arts Expo? I haven't registered yet. There's still time. I'm looking forward to reconnecting with colleagues and feeling recharged by fresh ideas, enjoying some professional development sessions, and finding some great acts to bring back to the Quad Cities. Still looking for another reason to go to Max? Well, you can meet the host of your favorite podcast. That's right, we will be there in booth 251. Stop by, say hello, take some photos, grab some swag, or maybe do a quick recording to hear yourself on our show. Remember, it's booth 251 at the Midwest Arts Expo. Hey everyone, it's Katie. And I hear that Kevin thinks he's your favorite No Business Like podcast host. But I know it's really me. I know you love my interviews the most and all the Michigan fun facts I bring you every week. So if you really want our crew to know which KM you love the best, Kevin Maynard or Katie Miller, stop by our booth at the Midwest Arts Expo. That's right, booth 251. And if you choose me, there might be some Michigan swag in it for you. We'll see you there. Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer and I'm here with Katie. Hey everyone, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. We're continuing this special series that we're doing where we're talking to uh, the pod squad. And today we have Danielle in the hot seat. Hey, hey. Hey, Danielle. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. We're getting ready to roast you. Oh, wait. Uh, I mean, ask you questions. <laughs> I prefer to be sauteed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So since Danielle, we're going to, we're going to kick off with your favorite thing. So since you've brought us some very fun games in the past, we're going to start off by playing a quick game, but with you in the hot seat this time, because normally you are roasting or sauteing us. So well, we, do, we do need your drum roll though. Cause you're always the one that does. <laughs> that one wasn't great. I should do it again. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for your very own lightning round? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Here we go. Question number one, lightning round or thunder round? Lightning round. How many shrimp can you eat in one sitting? 47. <laughs> <laughs> Name your favorite season. Summer. Best way to start your day, coffee, tea, or some sort of other beverage? Seven coffees. Seven coffees. Oh, wow. girl, you're speaking my language. Last show you binge watched? Dino trucks. <laughs> With your kids. Oh, the last show that I like binge watched, which is yes. like probably over the course of like two months, was the only show that I watched, which is RuPaul's Drag Race. Okay. Acceptable answer. I was going to call you on Dino Trucks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the location of your dream vacation? Ooh, I guess the beach. Which beach? Well, I don't want to tell everybody what my favorite beach is because then it'll be full <laughs> and I won't be able to go there anymore. Good point. Good point. I appreciate it. I have a secret beach up in Northern Michigan, which I also don't tell mm. people about because same reason. Okay. Ooh, is there wine? Of course there's wine. From that region. Of course. Okay. <laughs> Do you believe the earth is flat? No. <laughs> Thank goodness. Okay. That's a relief. The rest right. of the interview is going to go smoothly now. So. <laughs> okay. Name your favorite child. Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Trick question. You love them equally. Okay. Um, last question. How many questions are usually in a game like this? Um, how many are scribbled on the paper or how many get said? <laughs> yeah. I think eight. 
Yeah. I think that's about what it's been. Sometimes I've gotten like cold feet partway through and I've been like, no, that one's a little too sassy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think typically like eight to nine. Yeah. This is, this is nine. All right. Ding, ding, ding. You have completed your lightning round. All right, Danielle. The crowd goes wild. Before we get into the deep stuff, can you just tell us a little bit about the Alden where you work and what you do there? Yeah, I'd love to talk about the Alden. So the Alden is a 383-seat performing arts venue located in the McLean Community Center, which is in McLean, Virginia. What we do at the Alden is we do primarily presenting. We present a wide variety of genre, style um, of all performing arts forms. I work specifically on our youth presenting, which we do a full season indoors in our wonderful theater. Um, And then we also do probably about two months of presenting outdoors. Where, Where do you perform outdoors? So we perform actually in a gazebo. In like a town park? or Yes, actually. The thing about our location is kind of funky because the main road that goes through our town is called 123. <laughs> 123. Um, and right off of that intersection, there's like the corner of a park, which leads into the library, which leads into the McLean Community Center. So we're sort of on this campus. Um, but it was the vision of Mr. Alden to have all of the area services located really closely together. Was he like a civic leader of some sort or like what did he He was a civic leader. He was also an editor of the Washington Post. Oh, okay. And he sadly passed away about a year ago. No, actually in during the pandemic. It's maybe been it's been about a year since his um, celebration of life. Yeah. But you work for the county technically? So yeah, I technically work for Fairfax County government, um, which is larger than some states. Um, and we are uh, governed by our own board elected from McLean Tax District residents. In the 70s, uh, the McLean Area Tax District made its own tax district and decided to tax itself a percentage of their property tax so that they could fund a center and programming and staff to make sure that those kind of services were really close to home. So the arts were really important to that, as well as classes. You know, the community center has been so many things over We're about to celebrate 50 years, but the Alden, which is our theater, has always been um, a huge part of it. We've always had an art gallery um, and it's it's just a really wonderful place to have so much um, concentrated. So what do you do there? You know, you can name your role, but like, what is it that you actually do? Yes, I coordinate our presenting series for youth, but I also run all of our arts and ed programs and basically anything that involves any performing art and people under the age of 18. We're really fortunate to be in this DC region where it's very resource rich and we're not trying to recreate what already exists and is thriving in other places. The programs that we offer for our community are the Unruly Theater Project, which I've talked a lot about on here. It's our teen improv group and they perform comedic, lighthearted shows for the community. Um, And we're really looking to build like a pipeline of kids who are really interested in improv because it's such an incredible skill. I also do our spring show. We produce one show a year. um, And that's something we do mostly in-house with our staff with a a hired director and sometimes hired outside designers. I run a scholarship program. Um, People come and perform. The judges, we give awards. Um, We do usually one to two school bus in programs a year. And then I do whatever else pops up in that fiscal year or wherever my programming wants to take me. We add different things from year to year. Um, So each year 
uh, the programming that I do kind of shifts a little bit. Um, and I'm also our equity coordinator. Well, Danielle, that is quite a lot of things that are on your plate professionally. So how did you end up getting to the Alden? Let's talk a little bit about your professional journey and what your path was like leading you to where you are today. So I started taking theater classes in the summer, theater camps. I did that for a few years. Had um, a great time. Was definitely a huge like learning opportunity for me, like, you know, starting to find like a social home and like feeling a lot more comfortable. Um, but I started working at a community theater during the summers as an intern, as an usher. I was a costuming intern, intern one year, and that place was really a home. There was a group of us that were in high school that kind of came up together in those three to four years. Um, we worked on so many shows together. I mean, it was mostly high schoolers that ushered. So we saw each other probably six times a week. And then, you know, we'd go in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, there's a chain called Eaton Park. And so we'd go there a lot after rehearsal and after shows and just hang out like until it was way too late. It was just such an incredible, like bonding kind of being a teenager, like in the, in the most like wholesome and like <laughs> nerdy way you can be a teenager. I totally love that. Yeah, me too. But yeah, it was just so wonderful. I like, there just felt like there was genuine love there. And when I was looking to go to college, um, I had sort of realized at that point that I wasn't going to be an actor. And I was like, well, I guess I'll be a costumer because that's the other thing that I've done. And I'm like kind of good at it. I was still a little unsure about like, am I really going to sew for the rest of my life? Is that a thing? And it hit me one day um, while I was driving in with uh, the director of the theater who lived about 10 minutes from me. Um, and my mom would drive me to her house and then she would drive me in. So I had like a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with her and her cute little dog. It hit me that she had a job. And I was like, wait a second, that seems like a great job. And she was like getting close to retiring. And, and you know, towards the end, she was like, you know what? I think I'm, I'm going to give you and um, my other friend, Scotty, you guys will take over the theater when I'm gone. And I was like, oh, perfect. I'm going to study this in college. Great. My life is set. I love it here. Perfect. Um, and so I found a program in arts admin at Junietta College, which is in central Pennsylvania. Woo, woo. woo Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, I know. That was the first year they were starting an arts admin program really championed by Chad Herzog, who I've talked a lot about on this podcast as being my mentor. And he was running the, the presenting series there. So I was taking a lot of theater, a lot of business, marketing, and then probably about like the first few weeks I was like employed by the theater. So I was doing a lot of things that a one person presenter series in a university like can't do, which I'm sure you're pretty... Uh, understanding of that, Brian. <laughs> and he like hooked me up with other jobs. Like I worked for the marketing team. I worked for the president's wife. I like designed a once a month newsletter. So like I had all these opportunities on campus. It was such an awesome place for me to learn how to be like a baby arts administrator. And I'm, I'm president of Pennsylvania presenters. And I, a little birdie told me <laughs> that while you're at Juniana, <laughs> you, um, created a, a certain logo for us. Yeah. So. so while I was there, Pennsylvania presenters was looking for a logo and they decided like, let's have people submit their ideas. <laughs> and I think there were a few options. I think a lot of them were Juniata students, <laughs> um, but it's honestly just an opportunity of all of the things that I had at that college. And a lot of which is directly thanks to Chad. Mm -hmm. uh, but my design for the PA presenters logo was chosen and it's still in use. 
Yeah. That's like, what a cool, like full circle <laughs> moment though. Like who yeah. knew that this was going to be a thing when you designed that logo. And my compensation for that was an iPod shuffle. It's red. <laughs> and it was my first iPod. I love that. <laughs> and I was so excited to get an iPod. That's amazing. <laughs> so I graduated in 2009, um, which if you're following along is immediately after the 2008 recession. I had been doing internships while I was a student at Juniata. Um, I worked at my theater for one year, and then I worked um, as an intern at the Pennsylvania Council for the Arts. I also worked for one of their regional affiliates, the Bradford Council for the Arts. And as I was graduating, I was like, well, I know how to get an internship, and there are no jobs. You know, I started applying all over the place. One of them was at the Wolf Trap Foundation. I'd ended up getting offered two internships, one there and one somewhere else. But during that process, they were like, well, did you notice that we had a job open in education? And I was like, I did not, but I'm about to send you an application for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I ended up getting a job. I was an associate for the Wolf Trap Institute for Early Learning through the Arts. And I moved to the D.C. area 10 days after I graduated, feeling like a million bucks and started my arts admin career. Wow. So did you have connections in the D.C. area or were you completely alone? No, I so I had one friend. Oh, you had one friend. I was going to say, how does a young person who just got a job, didn't get their first paycheck yet, totally change locations like that? How do you get to D.C.? How do you survive until your first paycheck? My parents did a great job of making sure that like I saved birthday money and graduation money and um, all of those things. And they were great about making sure that that money happened. So if you if you had a different life situation that you grew up in and didn't have those funds, would that have not have been a possibility? I, yeah, I don't know how I would have gotten probably close to $2,000 to put down. And then you have to live. Yeah, no, you're, t you're right on. You know, not all young people have those circumstances. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a huge expense that... Um, you don't think that you need to plan for, especially when you're towards the end of college and yeah, there are just so expenses true. everywhere. And like Sally Mae comes telling you that like in six months, you've got some loans you have to start paying back. <laughs> um, and, and apparently you're going to be sufficient in six months. Yeah. And to be honest, like understanding privilege is something that I've really thought a lot about in the last couple of years. Um, and that's a huge one. It's mm -hmm. absolutely huge. Yeah. No, Brian, it it is a great point. And, yeah. and especially moving into art, the arts world, right. In general, like those salaries are not great to start with. It takes a long time to build up a decent wage as an arts administrator. And so, you know, for all of our undergrad or graduate students out there listening, like, I think it's a great point to really think about like pre-planning that and saving and having those connections and figuring out like how you're going to transition because Danielle, I was mm -hmm. in the same boat as you graduating in 2009 from undergrad and there were no jobs. None. There were just no jobs. Um, and so like I went home and I worked at the golf course again and like thankfully was able to sock away money. But um, yeah, I think it's a great point and something to think about and like not, we don't talk about finances and we don't talk no. about financial planning with young people, period. So I appreciate you bringing that to the forefront. And I will say there are some places that will provide a relocation assistance package and sometimes they'll have it, but not offer it. You have to ask for it. So don't be afraid to ask, always ask for that. Like I learned a lot in those first two years about finance. You know, thank God that I never got into an awful place, but I ended up being at the Wolf Trap Institute for about seven years. Um, 
I went from being the associate to the local programs manager. So we did residencies, um, DC, Maryland, Virginia, um, early education programs. And then I would also do one week residencies um, in downstate Virginia. And I did field trips and we did workshops. Early education, that's focusing on pre-K. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Pre-K and K. Yeah, we, our programs went uh, young enough to early head start. I think Wolf Trap now goes up to first grade. Um, it's an incredible organization, especially in the arts and ed realm. Um, and it was a pleasure and a joy um, to work there. Um, and if you're ever in the DC area, go to Wolf Trap to see a concert because it's, it's an experience and it's amazing. At some point towards the end there, I didn't want to be in arts and ed forever. And it had been seven years. I just didn't think that that was my path. And I wanted to get back to presenting. Um, and so I got a job at the Association of Performing Arts Professionals. Uh, while I was there, they actually changed that last P. Um, so I saw that kind of happen. Um, and I was an associate there in programs and resources. So we did all of the conference programs, the year-round programs. Again, another really incredible learning experience to see how a different organization runs, especially a smaller one. Um, because while APAP in New York looks huge, their staff is actually incredibly small. Um, I was there for about a year and then my job at the Alden came up and I looked at it and it was a mix of arts and education presenting. Um, you know, I'd been back in the presenting world for like a year. I started to like kind of learn how it worked a little bit better, knew some people. And I was like, this is my job. I like, I remember being like, I am going to get this job. I think I'm in my sixth or seventh year here now. I honestly can't remember. And there hasn't been a normal one yet. Um, just between like renovations and pandemics and all the things, um, I'm about to finish my like first full year. And I just did my first full season, um, of being a presenter after like seven years. That's amazing. Danielle, thank you for sharing your journey. I really love how you knew what you wanted and what you also, you didn't want. I think that's super important to recognize as a young professional. I think it's incredibly important to have that self-awareness and, and ability to self-reflect and go like, Oh, this is great, but I want to move in a different direction than actively pursue that. So I, I really love how you did that and how you got yourself to a spot where you could really combine all of your talents and passions together. Um, and I know one of those passions is youth and family programming. It's one of the things that brought you to the Alden. Um, and, and it was a passion that we share. We, we work in this space um, quite a lot um, together. And so tell us a little bit more about your youth and family programming passion, why, why that is so important to you. And honestly, like, what do you see as um, something that's really great about that part of the industry and maybe something that needs to change a little bit or shift in terms of its role in the wider industry um, or, you know, kind of the, the more artistic versus commercial programming would love to get your thoughts on that. Well, the thing that I was lucky to be, I think, bringing to the table in presenting was that I was so fortunate at Wolf Trap to have been given the opportunity to learn about early childhood development outside of the arts, what different experiences mean for like their brain development and their social development. And, you know, at Wolf Trap, we've done research on all this stuff too. And so like, I knew that arts experiences were necessary and important for children. And I also knew that having an experience like that with your family is something that every child should be able to experience and is just like a representation of love. And so what I love is seeing the families come and they're going to spend an hour together in the theater laughing um, and, and getting to see a performance. 
Um, and I just think it's so special. I love doing like before or after experiences to extend the learning opportunities or just like the understanding of a topic. And then um, on a curatorial kind of um, aspect to youth and family presenting, I want to make sure that our series has just a wide variety of options to choose from. And I want people to have things that they feel comfort in and then things that maybe feel a little bit challenging so that there's an opportunity for the theater to be a comfortable place that feels like home and also a place that feels new um, and allows you to discover things, allows you to be a little bit more curious. The challenge that I think I have in that is that the, the age range of youth and family um, is really so wide. You know, you want to do performances for like as young as feels comfortable to be in a theater up into 18. And so trying to find performances that like families can come back multiple times and have all of those experiences, I do find just in the limited number of um, dates that I have to be a little bit of a challenge. But it's something that I strive for to think about um, in our calendar, like what is the track that maybe a family, like picturing you know different types of families could come and see like three shows in the theater. And I wanna make sure all of those shows are super high quality. I wanna make sure that our front of house practices are as equitable and as friendly and as easy as possible. I want the whole experience to be really great so that if they haven't bought the tickets ahead before they leave, they're looking around and they're like, oh, what are they doing here? You know, I really want people to feel like when they come to that theater, that's their home. And especially our residents, because it is their theater. It's so special to have a theater that's in your hometown, that's your theater. And I also really want the entire family to enjoy the show. I don't want it to, at least I don't want every show to just be for the child. Um, I want the whole family to enjoy it and to feel like they got something out of it. What I love about artists who work in TYA is that they really, really think about that. And they know that they're creating shows for children and that's different um, in some ways than creating sort of an all ages or a general show. But, you know, the ones that I end up booking, they really get that it's for the entire family. Um, and then normally afterwards, I try to do like a meet and greet with the cast and just the number of stories that we've heard um, from parents in line or like right after the child meets the actors and, you know, gets a picture, you know, gets to talk to them. Like the reflections that the parents tell us sometimes is just like, mm. I mean, you can't stop, right? You have to keep going and you have to be better and you have to make, you have to make this small world that you touch better for that kid. You mentioned you want your audience members to discover new things. How do you discover the artists that you bring to the stage? And do you work with a team? Do you have like sole authority to just book things? What's the process like? Yeah, so we have a really awesome team, primarily for booking. I work with my colleague, Sarah Schaller-Treff. She is our performing arts director. We, we try not to make the separation to the audience as clearly as like what is for children or families and what is for adults, because people should be able to choose what experience is right for them. But we look at it internally as like, I do the things for youth and family, and she does the more all ages type performances. Um, and especially in the past couple of years, like that line has gotten razor thin. <laughs> um, but like we work really well as a team in sometimes being like, so this is kind of in your wheelhouse. Like, are you okay if this is in our season? Like, does this meet your 
standard. Like if somebody from your audience comes to see it, um, and also like, are you okay with me programming something that's like a little bit outside of my you know, the area that I'm supposed to stay in. Both of us have been very successful in doing that. Like we've both sort of booked things that are in each other's lane and like, it's wonderful. It makes everything better, right? It makes things better for the organization. Um, there are some things that I see at conference. Um, I see from the agents that I've worked with in the past that I really trust their curatorial vision that I just, I say, I know that this is what I'm bringing. Um, I know that we're doing this. I don't make a full season and then start doing offers. I do them sort of as I feel compelled to say, this is going to be in our next season. Um, and that usually starts in around like August, September. We have our our calendar uh, for the next year out and we start talking with agents. And sometimes we can book this show that you're really passionate about kind of at any time. And then I'll put a couple of holds on like what I think would be the best time for that show in our calendar. Or they say it has to be April 14th. Um, and April is probably our busiest month because so much goes out in April and I'll put a hold, um, on that date in our calendar. And I, I usually message Sarah to be like, are you looking for something else on April 14th? Cause if not, I'm about, I'm about to take it. So we sort of usually give each other like the first right of refusal, but it's like for a short period of time. And the number of times where it's been like, you know, like, oh, Danielle already committed something, but we have this thing. And, you know, we've not like, it's maybe been once or twice where it's been like, this is a huge thing. We need to try and figure out a date to move something. It's kind of ongoing from September to March. There are some conversations that I have with, with Sarah and with other people on the team about like things. I'm not a hundred percent sold on this. I'm not a hundred percent sold on how it fits in with the season. And I'll ask um, other parents in our organization that aren't arts people, like, is this something that if you had the time you would come and see? Um, and sometimes I do kind of take that feedback into consideration because um, that's really important too. You and I have talked off mic about um, kind of mission and vision and philosophy. And I know you specifically talk about your, your shows, especially youth and family shows in a specific way and like your marketing materials, grade levels, age levels. Can you tell us a little bit about like how you have developed those marketing tools so that families know what to expect or can identify the best experience for them? Yeah, I think in all of our marketing overall, we've tried to eliminate putting things in boxes so that we're not giving the illusion that some people are not included in who the show is for. So we took grade levels off of all of our performances. Um, we have um, an age rating system. Um, it's family friendly. Um, and I have, a, I have a key for all of these. So family friendly is um, a performance that was designed for children in mind first. It's usually 45 minutes to an hour. And the content is going to be rated G. Um, then we have our all ages performances, and those are not necessarily created with children in mind, but more of a general audience. They can be anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, and the content could go up um, to PG. And then we have sort of our like our 13 plus or our adult category. I think it's usually 13 plus that we list. Um, and that's, it's a longer show, a minimum hour and a half, definitely not designed for children. <laughs> and, um, you know, the content could be PG 13 or higher. And then you read the description and, and you understand more. We do maybe one 13 plus show a year because truly almost all of the shows that we bring in fall into that family friendly or all ages bucket. And our community is all ages. I mean, we have 
a huge amount of youth and children in our area. And a lot of people have retired in place. So, you know, our audience is, is all ages and we want people to be able to self-select into whatever show fits their needs. I do most of my programming at either four o'clock or six o'clock. And I do that for families that have younger children that are just napped, for families that have older children that are doing something before they go to a meal or they have a meal and then they come to the theater. But it's also for older folks that have low vision. There's no reason older folks can't come and see Frosty and then go out to dinner and then go home and the sun hasn't gone down yet and they feel really right. safe. Mm -hmm. But then putting something like ages four to seven on something like that would probably make somebody like that feel uncomfortable in buying two tickets to come and see this yeah, like kid show limiting. when it's frosty. Like it's for everyone. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Thank you for walking us through that because I do love the care in which you have put into that kind of guidance system and patrons, especially families, they're busy. So helping families in particular identify things that are meant for them um, are going to fit their their needs the best like with a quick glance i think it's super super smart you're an administrator you're a mom you're a mom of twins you're a wife you're a podcaster an activist a community member a daughter a friend many many other things but you're badass in all of them we have to say uh, <laughs> truly in everything yes. that you inhabit agreed but we're just curious that's a lot of things a lot of hats to wear and I don't have as many hats as you do, but I have a lot of hats too, and I have trouble juggling them. I'm just curious, how do you go about juggling all of that? What's your juggling act like? Yeah, so some days not well. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do everything I do without the help and support of everyone around me. You know, I'm really fortunate to have a partner who generally works like a roughly nine to five, like normal hours. Um, so my erratic schedule can kind of be worked around. And I also have extended family that are close by because sometimes he has an erratic schedule as well. I try as best as I can to focus on work when I'm at work and to focus on home when I'm at home and not cross those boundaries because then I'm not doing a great job at anything. Having twins and sort of going through that time of having baby twins at home really taught me that like I needed to be present in the thing that I'm being present at right now in order to be able to do it. And then I have to move on. And I was never that person before that. I was always trying to do everything myself, do all the lifting, get it done faster than the deadline was. Um, and generally, you know, exhausting myself in all areas. And so the process of becoming a mom definitely helped me in prioritizing all those different areas. And I've started learning uh, a couple of things about myself. It's like, I have to, I have to drink a butt ton of water. <laughs> exactly. How much is that? <laughs> uh, because <laughs> when you're dehydrated, <laughs> when you're dehydrated, you're not a real person. The same thing with sleeping. Like I make myself go to sleep at a certain time because if I don't sleep, like nothing happens and like things get worse. And the other thing is just like finding like an exercise routine because it turns out that like all of the basic things that people tell you that like will help you succeed are actually right. And all of the like life hacks are actually like way harder and hurt you. It's taken a while to realize that like you have to put your own seatbelt on first. you have to put your own mask on first before you put on your kid's mask in order to be able to take care of everybody. Like your body and your brain like have to be sort of like all together first. And you know what? It doesn't happen well every day because <laughs> it sure is a lot. Um, to try and keep together. Um, but that's sort of where I'm at with it right now. 
Well, and I appreciate that transparency so much, Danielle. And since we've become really close friends, like I appreciate you modeling that for me as a, a fellow mom and arts administrator and uh, your, you know, sometimes daily check-in reminders to me to like, are you eating? Are you sleeping? Do you have any water today? Like that is really helpful. You're so right. Like you have to take care of yourself in order to take care of others, but it is really, really difficult to do. And I also do recognize just like the privileged position I am in to be able to do those things because lots of other people aren't for lots of different reasons. And I have tried very hard not to take any of it for granted. One of the things Brian mentioned about you in that long list of things that you are and things that you do is an activist. Um, and I know that you are super passionate about the Pocahontas Project, which ties into your passion for equity and inclusion work in the art sector. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about the work that you do with that project and then specifically the DEI work um, that you're doing for the Alden. I, like many other people, became aware of like the term anti-racist and real understanding of systematic racism in April of 2020 during the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath of that and seeing a lot of DEI statements um, popping up and, you know, being in a world that was grappling with a much more real understanding of racism, especially racism in America and a pandemic. And at that point, in my life, I had 18 month olds, two 18 month olds. So I had the mornings to be with two 18 month old animals. <laughs> um, and we walked, we walked like five miles a day, um, because it was just hard to have them free range. <laughs> and that's one of the things that I miss about the pandemic, even though at the time I was like, this is my survival mechanism because it gave me a lot of time to think um, in, in that I, I discovered podcasts, TYA USA, which is an organization we've talked a lot about, did an incredible anti-racism series um, for uh, TYA professionals that really extends to almost all industry professionals. And that was so well put together and so well done. And I listened to those podcasts or webinars multiple times on my walks through all of that and through other equity things I was getting sent and being involved in. I learned about the podcast that I've talked about a lot on here called Seeing White. So me and my boys would walk and I, I don't like headphones. So like I just played them full blast and we just walked through the neighborhoods like learning about racism. <laughs> I think this is too also where I learned that like movement like in my body really matters because I would be so irate and angry and frustrated, but I'd also be like chugging up a hill with like a two baby stroller. And so like, I think that that kind of kept me a little bit like personally grounded. Cause you know, when you're understanding things that have been happening around you that you haven't seen, you become so upset with yourself mm. for not seeing it and for being so complacent. And it's frustrating. You know, there's a lot of like initial reactions of just like anger and fear. And then there's sort of the more longer term ones that set in. That's just like, I feel that feeling really down on yourself. You know, I kept being in the position to receive education and information. And I was also seeking it out. You know, I kind of found myself in different meetings that we were having about, you know, how are we going to celebrate Juneteenth or what, you know, what does pride look like in our center? Things that we were starting to look at a little bit more seriously and, um, plan for yearly. Um, and I just found myself really being able to be educated in, in those settings and, and offering more resources and just, you know, trying to be able to be like, well, I don't, I don't think that is the right direction because of, you know, these current issues in X, Y, and Z. 
that kind of work is like what led me to specific um, equity work within the Alden and within the McLean Community Center. Um, but you mentioned the Pocahontas Project. And um, in that first, in that podcast series, there's a heart-wrenching episode about um, the Trail of Tears and was spoken about in a way that like I understood it from a non-colonization standpoint. Um, and it gutted me. It absolutely gutted me that I started to find more resources and understanding of what happened. And once you learn one thing, you have to keep going and you have to keep trying to understand. And it was like, okay, well, I can't find who actually lived on this ground that I work on. So why is that? And who were the people adjacent to that? And, oh, actually now I'm curious who lived where I grew up. Oh, wait, why, you know, why is that so hard to find? Um, so that's led me to some different programming that we've done at the center, some programming that I want to start pursuing coming up as a personal opinion, not, not as a member of any organization that I'm not sure that systematic racism and a lot of the harm that's done today can be solved until we solve like really the original sin of this country, which is the displacement, the murder and um, the truly mistreatment of, of the native population that's been all over this entire country. And I mean, and, and I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> I don't think one person can fix it. I don't know that anybody necessarily knows how, but sometimes it feels like I don't know how we can make strides forward if we're not really actively talking about who this land was stolen mm-hmm. from. Danielle, then how did this this journey and this feeling of like really needing to participate and, and do something active. Is that what led you to the Pocahontas project? Um, I needed to do programming for native heritage month. That was, um, a directive given to me. And I knew that I wanted to focus in on Virginia native populations. Um, and I did a, a lot of research on who had been in Virginia and who was still here. Research led me to the Pocahontas project and um, a really incredible resource um, that they had pulled together and that we're trying to get out to the population to understand who Pocahontas was as a person um, because her true story, not her Disney story or her other um, different ways that her story is told, she's really the mother of America. Um, There's a lot of ways that her life could have gone differently that probably would have drastically changed the outcome of this country. And her story wasn't her, her time with the British wasn't short. It was long. And I realized that in understanding who had been here prior, my, sort of my initial question, a lot of it kind of goes back to the story of Pocahontas and her leadership um, and her cross-cultural uh, curiosity and, and trying to understand. And um, she put herself in really extreme circumstances to try to be an ambassador. We, we don't know if she knew that she was being used. Um, there's no writing from her. There's one image of her that exists. And, you know, there's, there's no documents from her that's left behind. Um, it's just writings, uh, mostly of John Smith. Um, and he changes his story multiple times throughout the writings of his life. But that story was fascinating for me because I was still trying to figure out what was the programming. And I realized that that itself was the programming. It was like, the things that I was learning, other people didn't know. And like the anger and the feelings that went along with that, like I needed somebody to talk to 
about them. And I would try to talk to like, my husband and other people in my life. And like, I would just have to give so much backstory. And then like, by the time I like got to like, why I was frustrated about something like two hours had gone by. <laughs> and so like, part of it was like, I need a group of people to talk about this too. Now we were going to take this moment to uh, go in my time machine and go someplace back in your past, but I haven't seen it since you borrowed it for Josh's interview. So I'm not sure. <laughs> so if we had the time machine, we'll have to just imagine. And we're going to go back to, you just were about to leave Juniata and go to Washington, DC. Is there any advice or anything you'd share with your former self? Yeah. So I wish that that person had felt like there was more room to fail. I put a lot of pressure on myself because I felt like I owed so many people for getting me to the positions that I was in. I had so many people that helped me get there along the way and I couldn't let them down. And I think it probably did some disharm to my mental health along the way. And I'd love for that person to feel a little bit less like they need to be what they think a young professional is supposed to be. You know, I, I wish that I had maybe like ignored my sleep schedule clock a little bit and gone out um, into the city a little bit more to do more networking events and things. Um, but I just was like, well, I have to get home and I have to make myself dinner. And, you know, I have to, I have to be in bed because I have to come back to work tomorrow. And I wish I had like taken that part of it a little bit easier. Um, Cause I, I was a little isolated, I think um, as a younger person. Well, we're just about done, Danielle, but uh we started with a game and we want to end with a game. And since Katie got to do the first one, I want to do this one. So this time it's called speak before you think. So it's kind of like a lightning round, but you get more than just like a one word answer or whatever. You got to dodge the lightning. Got to be fast so you can dodge. I'm going to say a word or a couple of words and just say whatever comes. It might just be a word that you have, or it might be a sentence or a thought. Just, you know, go ahead and complete the thought, but just say it as quick, quick as you can without thinking. That's, that's the whole rule. Okay. I can do this. I was born for this. Arts equity. Future justice love. Fun performance engagement. This is just for you and me, Brian. Uh, the, the showcase we saw at APAP in 2023. Yes. Oh, my God. I would have to totally agree with that. Josh Benson. Goofy. <laughs> wow, you didn't think at all for that one. You said I wasn't allowed to. Negotiations and contracting. Uh. My, my feelings, too. Wine. Yum. Kevin Maynard. Mustache and shoulders. <laughs> Education. Love. Hope. My babies. No business like. All the love. Yay. I love that game, Brian. That's super fun. And I love that we're putting Danielle on the hot seat for once because she just tortures <laughs> the rest of us. <laughs> this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful that we got to spend this time together, um, especially because, you know, I get to spend time with my gal pal, Danielle. Um, just for the listeners, it wouldn't surprise any of you that we wine and Zoom on a regular <laughs> basis <laughs> after our kids have gone to bed. And it makes our lives um, better. It totally makes our lives better. But um, so since we're not winding and zooming and we're in a professional setting right now, I'm going to close out with a professional question. And you know, I think you know what it is. What is your favorite thing about working in the industry at this moment in time? My favorite thing is the artists, seeing their resilience. And I say resilience and wanting to take it back immediately because it's been kind of forced. <laughs> I don't know that anybody necessarily wants to be resilient, <laughs> but like the situation that so many artists, especially the artists that we work with Katie in the, in the family programming space were under such extreme conditions three years ago and, and coming out of that and they're creating new and exciting work. 
the artists are the heart and soul of everything that we do. And um, when we get to host one in the theater or, you know, a group of people, I love it. And I want to make their experience with us in the Alden as great as we can um, within, you know, within our staff time and our budget and, and all the things that we need to do. But artists are incredible humans and they, they deserve all the respect in the world. And um, I mean, they're the reason that we do all of this, you know, um, and without them, this world would be a much, uh, a much grayer place. I also love you all deeply. (laughs) (laughs) And we love you too. Thank you for spending this time with us, Danielle. It's been fun learning more about one of our pod squad family members. So, and Katie, I don't want to say I couldn't do this without you because I, you could totally do this without me. I just couldn't do it without you. (laughs) I think we make an amazing team, Brian. So thanks, thanks Danielle. And thanks, Brian. Yeah, no, it's super fun. Danielle, I loved getting to know more about you. Like I always, I think one of the most interesting thing about doing these interviews with our fellow pod hosts is that we spend so much time like laughing and screwing around on here that sometimes I forget just how impressive like each one of us are individually and in our careers. Um, <laughs> and I thought you were a big dope. <laughs> no, wow. no, I, I was wrong. <laughs> no, I just felt like sometimes like you just like you hear like oh, you congest all of that into an hour about like everything that you've done in like in your life and the way that you you're focusing the things in your career. Like it's honestly really impressive and very thoughtful. And so I was just, I was just blown away by the interview. Like I learned so much about you in just a short amount of time. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> I like to set the bar very low. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have a job that wasn't in the arts? Prior to graduating high school for a hot second, I thought it would be fun to be a sample lady. Um, and I did that <laughs> off and on on the weekends for like six months. And then I was like, this is actually very not fun. What were you sampling? <laughs> so I think the first couple of samples I did were like easy. They were like snacks. One time I had to do like frozen food and stand in the frozen food section with like a toaster oven that I took from my house. But I hope that this doesn't upset any viewers because I was a young lady and most of my colleagues <laughs> were not. I was mostly in the tampons. Our <laughs> our. Sample tampons easy to hand out? I was I was gonna say I was like, <laughs> Well, it's like, you know, like if you're handing out snacks, you're like, hey everybody, have a snack, have a snack. But you know, it's like it's it's an it's more of an awkward thing if you're passing out tampons. You're just like samples. you might need this. Here you go. Yeah, and you don't want to be like, do you? <laughs> yeah, and like not everybody that maybe wants to try the like the future of sport uh product is necessarily like at Walmart at like three o'clock on Sunday. So it wasn't the best. All right, Kevin and Josh, enough about how amazing Danielle is. How about how incredible Katie and I were as a team? You guys were part of this? They were. And they kept taking notes that I I could see them typing like this. Were they prompting you? They were like, just say this. <laughs> no, there was a couple of times Brian gave me the like go faster sign and I just averted my eyes. You're like, I'm not paying attention. To I was this. like, this is my interview now. <laughs> yeah. I'm the captain. <laughs> I, Danielle, one of the things I, I actually was very curious about is you talked about the way that you sort of, uh, 
the, the guidance system that the Alden has in place for their youth and family shows. Um, we do that for everything. Oh, for, I'm okay. stealing that by the way. Yeah, I, I, love, I that. love that. So I was curious, is that something that you that you and your colleagues developed in house, or is that something that you saw somewhere else too? And you're like, oh, this makes the most sense. Um, because I I love it because I think that that's like a really great approach because you're right. Like who cares who the show is actually for? If you want to see the show, go see the show. I have my uh, education coordinator asking about our new family series, like, oh, we need age groups for this. And and I, I kind of in my gut felt like, no, because that seems limiting, but I didn't have a good alternative. And after hearing Danielle, I'm like, I am totally stealing that. Yeah. That is an amazing system. Yeah. It came from us having shows that I think we had a couple that were like five to seven or sort of in that young age range, but not pre-K. And like our audience sizes were smaller. And we were like, but this is an awesome show. It'd be great for other age groups. You know, that was sort of like the prescribed age group that came to us that like kind of came in the in the marketing information. And I just started thinking about what actually makes something family friendly and what actually makes something all ages. And a lot of those all ages shows, they're appropriate for children. It's a it's a special kind of kid who has a special kind of interest to come to like a classical music show or like a review of Simon and Garfunkel, right? Like that's not necessarily like in their interest wheelhouse, but it's certainly appropriate. And most of those shows, they're not going to go much beyond an hour and a half. And, you know, it's like there's no reason to exclude children from that experience because it's wonderful. But, you know, at the same breath, there's no reason to exclude somebody who is older from a youth and family show. Like we had the Paddington tour in here. Why can't somebody that grew up with that show come and enjoy it for an hour? Um, you know, so putting age groups on things like that, I just think is so limiting, but then it's also not every five-year-old develops at the exact same way. Not every five-year-old is ready to see whatever show. And you, like some five-year-olds are maybe going to be bored. Like, I don't know who they are. Um, and so we just like to provide those guide rails and then the description and then hope that that's enough for the families to decide what's appropriate. And if they still don't know, um, we stand out in front. Of, we do a curtain speech at every show and we say, like, talk to us. We're here. I love that. Like Brian, I'm I'm stealing it. Go for it. Yeah, please. <laughs> so whenever you were at Wolf Trap, did you get to see all of the shows at Wolf Trap if you wanted to? Not all of them. Um, we had accomplished that at the beginning of the season you knew and there was this, like a certain request period and then sometimes like as things were selling they would add more to the comp list they knew that they could offer to all staff uh but i saw a ton of stuff there that i wouldn't have normally seen um and that's part of what made that experience so incredible i wanted to raise up your dei journey i think like the way that you expressed it um and that frustration and those like stages of emotions that you went through at least for white arts administrators like that is probably what a lot of us have gone through um but it's so hard to vocalize what that experience is like and then you get to a point where you're like okay i have the knowledge what do i do next and it's those next steps which i think are the most difficult part to figure out I really appreciate how well you expressed what that journey was like. Danielle, you mentioned the Pocahontas Project, mm -hmm. and you said that's a podcast as well, because I, I listened, whenever you had mentioned the Seeing White podcast series before, I listened to that, and that was incredibly eye-opening. And so Pocahontas Project is a podcast series as well? So it is a series. I believe it's still behind a paywall, but that could be wrong. And what they really did was they grabbed everything that was publicly available on the internet that you could just go and find and watch anyway, but they put it into courses. 
so that you could follow in a chronological order. And then within that, they wrote different thinking questions, thought questions, because this wasn't designed to do with a group of people. So it's not a podcast per se. It's actually just a really smart way of distributing information, which is like finding really great sources, bundling them and making it easy for somebody to follow. Danielle, thank you for just having that conversation about being a woman and mom and all of those other things. Like I really appreciate how transparent uh, we have been as a, as a group with each other and on this podcast as the hosts in terms of like our own experiences as women and as moms in particular, because it is hard to talk about um, and we want to put on that armor and we want to like seem like we have it together every single day. But like we all know that we don't <laughs> and some days are better than others. Um, and so I just, you know, just as, as friends, right. I just appreciate your vulnerability in that. And uh, I think the more that we, we have these conversations, the more we give permission to other people to have these conversations in their workplaces and amongst their friends and family and seek out the support that they need. And I think also your recognition of privilege, right. And having the support that you need and, the fact that like you cannot have a great day and it's not the world isn't going to fall down around you. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for us to recognize. And so I'm just really grateful that we get to have those conversations and hopefully we are opening doors for other folks to have those conversations as well. Agree. Well, friends, we're out of time and I know we could spend the rest of the day talking about how great Danielle was, but I just want to thank you, Danielle, for sharing your story. It was a very wide encompassing uh, conversation about so many different things about you and your journey. And I appreciate it as much as the rest of us. We'll see you all next week. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. So we already did the intro, which is part of the interview, so... You guys can jump right into the... It was fine. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us on another episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>